Chapter Two, Part B of the Wealth of Nations, Book Five. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stephen Escalera. The Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith, Book Five, Chapter Two, Part B, of the Sources of the General or Public Revenue of the Society. Part Two of taxes the private revenue of individuals it has been shown in the first book of this inquiry arises ultimately from three different sources rent profit and wages every tax must finally be paid from some one or other of those three different sources of revenue or from all of them indifferently I shall endeavor to give the best account I can first of those taxes which it is intended should fall upon rent secondly of those which it is intended should fall upon profit thirdly of those which it is intended should fall upon wages and fourthly of those which it is intended should fall indifferently upon all those three different sources of private revenue the particular consideration of each of these four different sorts of taxes will divide the second part of the present chapter into four articles three of which will require several other subdivisions many of these taxes it will appear from the following review are not finally paid from the fund or source of revenue upon which it is intended they should fall before i enter upon the examination of particular taxes it is necessary to premise the four following maxims with regard to taxes in general one the subjects of every state ought to contribute towards the support of the government as nearly as possible in proportion to their respective abilities that is in proportion to the revenue which they respectively enjoy under the protection of the state the expense of government to the individuals of a great nation is like the expense of management to the joint tenants of a great estate who are all obliged to contribute in proportion to their respective interest in the estate in the observation or neglect of this maxim consists what is called the equality or inequality of taxation every tax it must be observed once for all which falls finally upon one only of the three sorts of revenue above mentioned is necessarily unequal in so far as it does not affect the other two in the following examination of different taxes i shall seldom take much farther notice of this sort of inequality but shall in most cases confine my observations to that inequality which is occasioned by a particular tax falling unequally upon that particular sort of private revenue which is affected by it two the tax which each individual is bound to pay ought to be certain and not arbitrary the time of payment the manner of payment the quantity to be paid ought all to be clear and plain to the contributor and to every other person where it is otherwise every person subject to the tax is put more or less in the power of the tax-gatherer who can either aggravate the tax upon any obnoxious contributor or extort by the terror of such aggravation some present or perquisite to himself the uncertainty of taxation encourages the insolence and favors the corruption of an order of men who are naturally unpopular even where they are neither insolent nor corrupt the certainty of what each individual ought to pay is in taxation a matter of so great importance that a very considerable degree of inequality it appears i believe from the experience of all nations is not near so great an evil as a very small degree of uncertainty three 
every tax ought to be levied at the time, or in the manner, in which it is most likely to be convenient for the contributor to pay it. A tax upon the rent of land or of houses, payable at the same term at which such rents are usually paid, is levied at the time when it is most likely to be convenient for the contributor to pay, or when he is most likely to have wherewithal to pay. Taxes upon such consumable goods as are articles of luxury are all finally paid by the consumer, and generally in a manner that is very convenient for him. He pays them by little and little, as he has occasion to buy the goods. As he is at liberty, too, either to buy or not to buy as he pleases, it must be his own fault if he ever suffers any considerable inconveniency from such taxes. 4. Every tax ought to be so contrived as both to take out and to keep out of the pockets of the people as little as possible, over and above what it brings into the public treasury of the state. A tax may either take out or keep out of the pockets of the people a great deal more than it brings into the public treasury in the four following ways. First, the levying of it may require a great number of officers whose salaries may eat up the greater part of the produce of that tax, and whose perquisites may impose another additional tax upon the people. Secondly, it may obstruct the industry of the people and discourage them from applying to certain branches of business which might give maintenance and employment to great multitudes while it obliges the people to pay it may thus diminish or perhaps destroy some of the funds which might enable them more easily to do so thirdly by the forfeitures and other penalties which those unfortunate individuals incur who attempt unsuccessfully to evade the tax it may frequently ruin them and thereby put an end to the benefit which the community might have received from the employment of their capitals an injudicious tax offers a great temptation to smuggling but the penalties of smuggling must arise in proportion to the temptation the law contrary to all the ordinary principles of justice first creates the temptation and then punishes those who yield to it and it commonly enhances the punishment too in proportion to the very circumstance which ought certainly to alleviate it the temptation to commit the crime fourthly by subjecting the people to the frequent visits and the odious examination of the tax-gatherers it may expose them to much unnecessary trouble, vexation, and oppression. And though vexation is not, strictly speaking, expense, it is certainly equivalent to the expense at which every man would be willing to redeem himself from it. It is, in some one or other of these four different ways, that taxes are frequently so much more burdensome to the people than they are beneficial to the sovereign. The evident justice and utility of the foregoing maxims have recommended them, more or less, to the attention of all nations. All nations have endeavored to the best of their judgment to render their taxes as equal as they could contrive, as certain, as convenient to the contributor, both the time and the mode of payment, and in proportion to the revenue which they brought to the prince, as little burdensome to the people. The following short review of some of the principal taxes which have taken place in different ages and countries will show that the endeavors of all nations have not in this respect been equally successful. Article 1. Taxes upon rent. Taxes upon the rent of land. A tax upon the rent of land may either be imposed according to a certain canon, every district being valued at a certain rent, which valuation is not afterwards to be altered, or it may be imposed in such a manner as to vary with every variation in the real rent of the land, and to rise or fall with the improvement or declension of its cultivation. A land tax, 
which, like that of Great Britain, is assessed upon each district according to a certain invariable canon, though it should be equal at the time of its first establishment, necessarily becomes unequal in process of time, according to the unequal degrees of improvement or neglect in the cultivation of the different parts of the country. In England, the valuation, according to which the different counties and parishes were assessed to the land tax by the fourth of William and Mary, was very unequal, even at its first establishment. This tax, therefore, so far offends against the first of the four maxims above mentioned. It is perfectly agreeable to the other three. It is perfectly certain. The time of payment for the tax, being the same as that for the rent, is as convenient as it can be to the contributor. Though the landlord is, in all cases, the real contributor, the tax is commonly advanced by the tenant, to whom the landlord is obliged to allow it in the payment of the rent. This tax is levied by a much smaller number of officers than any other which affords nearly the same revenue. As the tax upon each district does not rise with the rise of the rent, the sovereign does not share in the profits of the landlord's improvements. Those improvements sometimes contribute, indeed, to the discharge of the other landlords of the district. But the aggravation of the tax, which this may sometimes occasion upon a particular estate, is always so very small that it can never discourage those improvements, nor keep down the produce of the land below what it would otherwise rise to. As it has no tendency to diminish the quantity, it can have none to raise the price of that produce. It does not obstruct the industry of the people, it subjects the landlord to no other inconveniency besides the unavoidable one of paying the tax. The advantage, however, which the landlord has derived from the invariable constancy of the valuation, by which all the lands of Great Britain are rated to the land tax, has been principally owing to some circumstances altogether extraneous to the nature of the tax. It has been owing in part to the great prosperity of almost every part of the country, the rents of almost all the estates of Great Britain having, since the time when this valuation was first established, been continually rising, and scarce any of them have fallen. The landlords, therefore, have almost all gained the difference between the tax which they would have paid, according to the present rent of their estates, and that which they actually pay, according to the ancient valuation. Had the state of the country been different, had rents been gradually falling in consequence of the declension of cultivation, the landlords would almost all have lost this difference. In the state of things which has happened to take place since the revolution, the constancy of the valuation has been advantageous to the landlord and hurtful to the sovereign. In a different state of things it might have been advantageous to the sovereign and hurtful to the landlord. As the tax is made payable in money, so the valuation of the land is expressed in money. Since the establishment of this valuation, the value of silver has been pretty uniform, and there has been no alteration in the standard of the coin, either as to weight or fineness. Had silver risen considerably in its value, as it seems to have done in the course of the two centuries which preceded the discovery of the mines of America, the constancy of the valuation might have proved very oppressive to the landlord. Had silver fallen considerably in its value, as it certainly did for about a century at least after the discovery of those mines, the same constancy of valuation would have reduced very much this branch of the revenue of the sovereign. Had any considerable alteration been made in the standard of the money, either by sinking the same quantity of silver to a lower denomination, or by raising it to a higher, had an ounce of silver, for example, instead of being coined into five shillings and twopence, 
been coined either into pieces which bore so low a denomination as two shillings and sevenpence or into pieces which bore so high a one as ten shillings and fourpence it would in the one case have hurt the revenue of the proprietor in the other that of the sovereign in circumstances therefore somewhat different from those which have actually taken place this constancy of valuation might have been a very great inconveniency either to the contributors or to the commonwealth in the course of ages such circumstances however must at some time or other happen but though empires like all the other works of men have all hitherto proved mortal yet every empire aims at immortality every constitution therefore which it is meant should be as permanent as the empire itself ought to be convenient not in certain circumstances only but in all circumstances or ought to be suited not to those circumstances which are transitory occasional or accidental but to those which are necessary and therefore always the same a tax upon the rent of land which varies with every variation of the rent or which rises and falls according to the improvement or neglect of cultivation is recommended by that sect of men of letters in france who call themselves the economists as the most equitable of all taxes all taxes they pretend fall ultimately upon the rent of land and ought therefore to be imposed equally upon the fund which must finally pay them that all taxes ought to fall as equally as possible upon the fund which must finally pay them is certainly true but without entering into the disagreeable discussion of the metaphysical arguments by which they support their very ingenious theory it will sufficiently appear from the following review what are the taxes which fall finally upon the rent of land and what are those which fall finally upon some other fund in the venetian territory all the arable lands which are given and leased to farmers are taxed at a tenth of the rent the leases are recorded in a public register which is kept by the officers of revenue in each province or district when the proprietor cultivates his own lands they are valued according to an equitable estimation and he is allowed a deduction of one-fifth of the tax so that for such land he pays only eight instead of ten per cent of the supposed rent a land tax of this kind is certainly more equal than the land tax of england it might not perhaps be altogether so certain and the assessment of the tax might frequently occasion a good deal more trouble to the landlord it might too be a good deal more expensive in the levying such a system of administration however might perhaps be contrived as would in a great measure both prevent this uncertainty and moderate this expense the landlord and tenant for example might jointly be obliged to record their lease in a public register proper penalties might be enacted against concealing or misrepresenting any of the conditions and if part of those penalties were to be paid to either of the two parties who informed against and convicted the other of such concealment or misrepresentation it would effectually deter them from combining together in order to defraud the public revenue all the conditions of the lease might be sufficiently known from such a record some landlords instead of raising the rent take a fine for the renewal of the lease this practice is in most cases the expedient of a spendthrift who for a sum of ready money sells a future revenue of much greater value it is in most cases therefore hurtful to the landlord it is frequently hurtful to the tenant and it is always hurtful to the community it frequently takes from the tenant so great a part of his capital and thereby diminishes so much his ability to cultivate the land 
that he finds it more difficult to pay a small rent than it would otherwise have been to pay a great one. Whatever diminishes his ability to cultivate necessarily keeps down below what it would otherwise have been the most important part of the revenue of the community. By rendering the tax upon such fines a good deal heavier than upon the ordinary rent, this hurtful practice might be discouraged, to the no small advantage of all the different parties concerned, of the landlord, of the tenant, of the sovereign, and of the whole community. Some leases prescribe to the tenant a certain mode of cultivation, and a certain succession of crops, during the whole continuance of the lease. This condition, which is generally the effect of the landlord's conceit of his own superior knowledge, a conceit in most cases very ill-founded, ought always to be considered as an additional rent, as a rent in service, instead of a rent in money. In order to discourage the practice, which is generally a foolish one, this species of rent might be valued rather high, and consequently taxed somewhat higher than common money rents. Some landlords, instead of a rent in money, require a rent in kind, in corn, cattle, poultry, wine, oil, etc. Others, again, require a rent in service. Such rents are always more hurtful to the tenant than beneficial to the landlord. They either take more, or keep more out of the pocket of the former, than they put into that of the latter. In every country where they take place, the tenants are poor and beggarly, pretty much according to the degree in which they take place. By valuing, in the same manner, such rents rather high, and consequently taxing them somewhat higher than common money rents, a practice which is hurtful to the whole community, might, perhaps, be sufficiently discouraged. When the landlord chose to occupy himself a part of his own lands, the rent might be valued according to an equitable arbitration of the farmers and landlords in the neighborhood, and a moderate abatement of the tax might be granted to him, in the same manner as in the Venetian territory provided the rent of the lands which he occupied did not exceed a certain sum. It is of importance that the landlord should be encouraged to cultivate a part of his own land. His capital is generally greater than that of the tenant, and, with less skill, he can frequently raise a greater produce. The landlord can afford to try experiments, and is generally disposed to do so. His unsuccessful experiments occasion only a moderate loss to himself. His successful ones contribute to the improvement and better cultivation of the whole country. It might be of importance, however, that the abatement of the tax should encourage him to cultivate to a certain extent only. If the landlords should, the greater part of them, be tempted to farm the whole of their own lands, the country, instead of sober and industrious tenants, who are bound by their own interest to cultivate as well as their capital and skill will allow them, would be filled with idle and profligate bailiffs, whose abusive management would soon degrade the cultivation and reduce the annual produce of the land to the diminution not only of the revenue of their masters, but of the most important part of that of the whole society. Such a system of administration might, perhaps, free a tax of this kind from any degree of uncertainty, which could occasion either oppression or inconvenience to the contributor and might, at the same time, serve to introduce into the common management of land such a plan of policy as might contribute a good deal to the general improvement and cultivation of the country. The expense of levying a land tax, which varied with every variation of the rent, would, no doubt, be somewhat greater than that of levying one which was always rated according to a fixed valuation. Some additional expense would necessarily be incurred, both by the different register offices, 
which it would be proper to establish in the different districts of the country, and by the different valuations which might occasionally be made of the lands which the proprietor chose to occupy himself. The expense of all this, however, might be very moderate, and much below what is incurred in the levying of many other taxes, which afford a very inconsiderable revenue in comparison of what might easily be drawn from a tax of this kind. The discouragement which a variable land tax of this kind might give to the improvement of land seems to be the most important objection which can be made to it. The landlord would certainly be less disposed to improve, when the sovereign, who contributed nothing to the expense, was to share in the profit of the improvement. Even this objection might, perhaps, be obviated by allowing the landlord, before he began his improvements, to ascertain, in conjunction with the officers of revenue, the actual value of his lands according to the equitable arbitration of a certain number of landlords and farmers in the neighborhood, equally chosen by both parties, and by rating him, according to this valuation, for such a number of years as might be fully sufficient for his complete indemnification. To draw the attention of the sovereign towards the improvement of the land, from a regard to the increase of his own revenue, is one of the principal advantages proposed by this species of land tax. The term, therefore, allowed, for the indemnification of the landlord, ought not to be a great deal longer than what was necessary for that purpose, lest the remoteness of the interest should discourage too much this attention. It had better, however, be somewhat too long, than in any respect too short. No incitement to the attention of the sovereign can ever counterbalance the smallest discouragement to that of the landlord. The attention of the sovereign can be, at best, but a very general and vague consideration of what is likely to contribute to the better cultivation of the greater part of his dominions. The attention of the landlord is a particular and minute consideration of what is likely to be the most advantageous application of every inch of ground upon his estate. The principal attention of the sovereign ought to be, to encourage, by every means in his power, the attention both of the landlord and of the former, by allowing both to pursue their own interest in their own way, and according to their own judgment, by giving to both the most perfect security that they shall enjoy the full recompense of their own industry, and by procuring to both the most extensive market for every part of their produce, in consequence of establishing the easiest and safest communications, both by land and by water, through every part of his own dominions, as well as the most unbounded freedom of exportation to the dominions of all other princes. If, by such a system of administration, a tax of this kind could be so managed as to give, not only no discouragement, but, on the contrary, some encouragement to the improvement of land, it does not appear likely to occasion any other inconveniency to the landlord except always the unavoidable one of being obliged to pay the tax. In all the variations of the state of the society, in the improvement and in the declension of agriculture, in all the variations in the value of silver, and in all those in the standard of the coin, a tax of this kind would, of its own accord, and without any attention of government, readily suit itself to the actual situation of things, and would be equally just and equitable in all those different changes. It would, therefore, be much more proper to be established as a perpetual and unalterable regulation, or, as what is called, a fundamental law of the commonwealth, than any tax which was always to be levied according to a certain valuation. Some states, 
instead of the simple and obvious expedient of a register of leases, have had recourse to the laborious and expensive one of an actual survey and valuation of all the lands in the country. They have suspected, probably, that the lesser and lessee, in order to defraud the public revenue, might combine to conceal the real terms of the lease. Doomsday Book seems to have been the result of a very accurate survey of this kind. In the ancient dominions of the king of Prussia, the land tax is assessed according to an actual survey and valuation, which is reviewed and altered from time to time. According to that valuation, the lay proprietors pay from 20 to 25 percent of their revenue, ecclesiastics from 40 to 45 percent. The survey and valuation of Cilicia was made by order of the present king, it is said, with great accuracy. According to that valuation, the lands belonging to the bishop of Breslau are taxed at 25% of their rent. The other revenues of the ecclesiastics of both religions at 50%. The commandaries of the Teutonic order and of that of Malta at 40%. Lands held by a noble tenure at 38 and one-third percent. Lands held by a base tenure at 35 and one-third percent. The survey and valuation of Bohemia is said to have been the work of more than a hundred years. It was not perfected till after the peace of 1748, by the orders of the present Empress Queen. The survey of the Duchy of Milan, which was begun in the time of Charles VI, was not perfected till after 1760. It is esteemed one of the most accurate that has ever been made. The survey of Savoy and Piedmont was executed under the orders of the late King of Sardinia. In the dominions of the king of Prussia, the revenue of the church is taxed much higher than that of lay proprietors. The revenue of the church is, the greater part of it, a burden upon the rent of land. It seldom happens that any part of it is applied towards the improvement of land, or is so employed as to contribute, in any respect, towards increasing the revenue of the great body of the people. His Prussian majesty had probably, upon that account, thought it reasonable that it should contribute a good deal more towards relieving the exigencies of the state. In some countries, the lands of the church are exempted from all taxes. In others, they are taxed more lightly than other lands. In the Duchy of Milan, the lands which the church possessed before 1575 are rated to the tax at a third only of their value. In Cilicia, Lands held by a noble tenure are taxed 3% higher than those held by a base tenure. The honors and privileges of different kinds annexed to the former, his Prussian majesty had probably imagined, would sufficiently compensate to the proprietor a small aggravation of the tax, while, at the same time, the humiliating inferiority of the latter would be in some measure alleviated by being taxed somewhat more lightly. In other countries, the system of taxation, instead of alleviating, aggravates this inequality. In the dominions of the king of Sardinia, and in those provinces of France which are subject to what is called the real, or predial tail, the tax falls altogether upon the lands held by a base tenure. Those held by a noble one are exempted. A land tax assessed according to a general survey and valuation, how equal soever it may be at first, must, in the course of a very moderate period of time, become unequal. To prevent its becoming so would require the continual and painful attention of government to all the variations in the state and produce of every different farm in the country. The governments of Prussia, of Bohemia, 
of Sardinia, and of the Duchy of Milan, actually exert an attention of this kind, an attention so unsuitable to the nature of government that it is not likely to be of long continuance, and which, if it is continued, will probably, in the long run, occasion much more trouble and vexation than it can possibly bring relief to the contributors. In 1666, the generality of Montebon was assessed to the real or predial tail, according, it is said, to a very exact survey and valuation. By 1727, this assessment had become altogether unequal. In order to remedy this inconveniency, government has found no better expedient than to impose upon the whole generality an additional tax of 120,000 livres. This additional tax is rated upon all the different districts subject to the tail according to the old assessment. But it is levied only upon those which, in the actual state of things, are by that assessment undertaxed, and it is applied to the relief of those which, by the same assessment, are overtaxed. Two districts, for example, one of which ought, in the actual state of things, to be taxed at 900, the other at 1100 livres, are, by the old assessment, both taxed at a thousand livres. Both these districts are, by the additional tax, rated at eleven hundred livres each. But this additional tax is levied only upon the district undercharged, and is applied altogether to the relief of that overcharged, which consequently pays only nine hundred livres. The government neither gains nor loses by the additional tax, which is applied altogether to remedy the inequalities arising from the old assessment. The application is pretty much regulated according to the discretion of the intendant of the generality, and must therefore be in a great measure arbitrary. End of Book 5, Chapter 2, Part B